The following is a special sports presentation of UltimateSportsTalk.com. High fly ball, way back in center field. It is out of here. A grand slam home run. And this one belongs to the Reds. UltimateSportsTalk.com now presents the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. A comprehensive look at the Cleveland Indians and Cincinnati Reds. For the sixth consecutive season, we examine each team and their progress through the 2016 Major League Baseball season. And now, the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I am Dave Mitchell. Glad to have you along tonight on UltimateSportsTalk.com as we bring you what has happened in the past week between the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds. Of course, the draft was held last week. The Indians and Reds really had a successful week. The Reds went 3-3, three and three, the Indians went 4-3, and three, but they're on complete opposites of the divisional standings. The Reds are in last place in the National League Central, while the Indians are in first place in the American League Central. And to go down south and talk about the <coughs> Cincinnati Reds this week, as always, let's bring in our resident Reds expert, Mark Donahue. Mark, how are you this week? Well, I'm pretty good, Dave, but I, I'm really surprised that the tone of your voice had a certain gloating to it. Uh, the Reds are in last place, the Indians are in first. And let me remind you, though, that you have rescinded your pick of the Indians to win, to go to the American League playoffs. So uh, your gloating, I think, is misplaced. There's no gloating. I, I root for Cleveland. You're, you're a gloater, David. You're a gloater. <laughs> Believe me, if you if you root for anybody in Cleveland, you cannot gloat. Just just look at the NBA Finals right now. <laughs> but anyway, hey. Reds had a pretty good week. They took two out of three against Oakland. Oakland had been playing some pretty good baseball heading into their series with the Reds. And the Reds got, at least for the first couple of games, some good starting pitching, including Dan Straley. Yeah, he's been a real uh, surprise for everybody, I think, down here. And if nothing else, you look at these guys and, and what they do, how they do it, uh, coming into situations where they – you know, the old saying, grab the bull by the horns, but the, he's done that. And a situation like this, what it does, it makes Dan Straley a major leaguer for probably the next two or three years, no matter what. He, he, he is winning on a bad team. He's pitching well. He's getting notoriety. And that that extends a player's career. And uh, that that's what, what those guys do. These are professionals. Uh, their loyalty to a team is is really limited to who signs them, who who, who signs their check, and um, it, it's nice to see a guy like that take advantage of the situation. That he's pitched well, and he's pitched well against some pretty good teams. Mark Anthony DiSclefani, he came out and pitched his first game last week, and. It was really a rough outing. Was that something that was just his first start of the year, or is that something that people should be concerned about? Well, I don't think he had a rough outing. Uh, he won. The Reds won the game 2-1. to one. Uh, So he, he did not have a rough outing. He, he, I think he pitched very well. 
and pitched almost 100 pitches, and uh, his stuff was there, and uh, the Reds won that game. So he, uh, I think he pitched well. I, he may have given up a few hits. I think he gave up, what, seven or eight hits. But uh, he, he got himself out of jams, and his, the, the main thing is he came out of it healthy. And it's amazing, when I saw him pitch that game, uh, he is so much better than the Reds have had so far this year in most cases on their starting rotation. And once they get Lorenzen back, they get Bailey back, uh, they've got uh, Iglesias back, uh, you know, they're going to they're gonna be fine on the pitching side. Uh, but it's it's too little too late. I mean, they're already 20 games out of first place, and that's not going to change. But uh, it, it will be interesting to see how these young pitchers develop over the second half of the year and, and set them up for 2017. Mark, before we get into the Indians and what they did over the last week, you brought up Rasiel Iglesias, and he had a very successful rehab outing for Pensacola on Saturday night. Did you have any reports as to how he came out of that over the last couple of days and how his arm feels? Yeah, this morning they said he felt fine, that uh, he's probably ahead of schedule in terms of where they saw him. But uh, when he does come back, he and Lorenzen are both going to go into the bullpen, which is going to really improve the, the, the depth of that pin and get some of these younger kids that they have thrown at the major league level back to AAA where they belong where they can maybe develop a little better. Uh, they are not major league pitchers, and I think most people know that. But, uh, yeah, I think with Lorenzen, Iglesias, Di Scafani coming back, and Homer Bailey apparently maybe two or three weeks away, that changes the entire starting rotation, and it changes dramatically the bullpen. Mark, last week I made the comment that the Indians were going on a 10-game road trip, and the first seven games were a four-game set against Seattle and a three-game set against the Los Angeles Angels. And I would be pleased if the team went three and four on that seven-game trek, the first seven games of this road trip, this 10-game set. And they ended up going four and three. So they did better than I actually hoped that they would do, Mark. they, they When they went on this trip, they were a game up. Now they're three games up on Kansas City and Detroit heading into tonight's action. So I would say when you look at that, Mark, they've got to be pretty pleased with where they're at right now. Yeah, I, I, I don't blame you for saying that. I think that's if you looked at the beginning of the year and said, look, on, on June, whatever today's date is, the 11th, 12th, whatever. The 13th. 13th, that they, they would be in first place by three games, and you, you certainly couldn't, you couldn't knock that. Uh, but I, I'm interested. You're closer to it than I am. What is with Kansas City this year? Are, are they did they overperform last year, or are, are they where you thought they would be at this time of the season? They've got two problems, Mark, and they've shown it against the Indians. They're playing the Indians tonight. They've shown it against the Tribe. Their starting pitching is not as deep as what they thought it was going to be heading into the season. And the second thing is they're running into injuries. Mustakas is out for the year. They've got uh, a AAA ball player playing third base for the rest of the year. And on top of that, their their pitcher or their catcher, excuse me, Perez, has been out of the lineup for the last three weeks because he strained some ligament muscles in his knee on a play at home plate. 
Now, when you take those two bats out of your lineup, Mark, that completely erases the advantage they've got with Alex Gordon and left and Eric Hosmer at first base. You've got no right-handed bats to protect those left-handed hitters, and it makes Kansas City very, very susceptible to left-handed pitching, as Chris Sale showed last week, and so did a lot of other pitchers. Hey, I want also, while I'm thinking about it, Matt Latos was designated for assignment with the White Sox. Mark, he was not pitching all that bad for the White Sox. It's got to be his attitude again. Well, in the last seven starts, he got lit up. His ERA over his last seven starts was almost eight. So he was getting beat around. But you're right, he had a great start. I think he had an 0.95 ERA, I think, on what, the first five or six starts. He pitched a couple of shutouts, pitched very well. But I don't know if you saw that he really blasted the White Sox. Uh, and, you know, he, he burns bridges. And that, that, that may be his last, his last chance in the base. If he was a left-hander, it might be a little different. But the last three times he's been on a team, he's left with, with bad blood, uh, you know, and scorched earth, which is not, not a smart thing to do when you're a, a major leaguer. He did that with the Reds, he did it with the Marlins, and now he's done it with the White Sox. After a while, you run out of teams, and, uh, he's just, I mean, by all indications, he's just kind of a jerk. And I don't know why he's that way. I don't. The, the interesting thing to me is, how does the press uh, view a guy? But then, <laughs> to me, more importantly, is how do his teammates view him? Because the press can, you know, if a guy is not good with the press and ticks off the wrong people, he can get a bad reputation in the in the papers. But the real litmus test is, what do the guys in the locker room think of you? And uh, I've not really heard that other than some of the people here in Cincinnati when Latos left, if you recall, he really bad-mouthed the team. And uh, a lot of the people, a lot of the teammates said, good riddance to bad rubbish to get him out of here. He's a pain in the butt. Uh, And if that's the way the White Sox teammates feel and the Marlins teammates feel, uh, he may never get another chance. I think the only team that he didn't bad-mouth when he left was San Diego. Yeah, you're, you're right, and but that's he's been with four teams now in what five years, so there's something beyond just a hanging curveball that that is the issue. But at the same time, if he still had an 0.95 ERA, he'd still be pitching for the White Sox. So absolutely, I mean, an 0.95 ERA can eliminate a lot of problems in the dugout. Oh yeah, and it has in the past too. I mean, you have guys hitting 340; they may be jerks, but everybody overlooks it because he's hitting 340. So, but when you combine bad performance and and you're a jerk, uh, that's that's an offer you don't want. That being said, don't be surprised if after this 10-day period goes by and the White Sox just go ahead and release him, that he ends up in one of two places, Kansas City or the L.A. Angels. The Angels are desperate for starting pitching. They started David Huff against the Indians yesterday. And David Huff is an old Indians player. He went to pitch for the Yankees. He's been almost as many places Mark as Latos has been. They are desperate for starting pitching. And they may take a chance on Latos. Tim Lincecum, they signed him, remember, a couple of weeks ago. He went down to the minor leagues, and I heard on Saturday he pitched outstanding. They're expected to bring him up and pitch him on Friday, this coming Friday for the Angels. That'll be interesting to see. But, I, you know, number one, um, Leto's reputation, I think, would be a, a stumbling block. And more to the point, his velocity is down. His fastball 
was topping out at 88 miles an hour with the White Sox. And, you know, when he was with the Reds, he was throwing 93, 94. That's a huge drop-off. But more importantly, they said his batted balls in play, uh, he was getting uh, a lot of outs uh, that normally, statistically, he wouldn't get above the norm. Uh, where those those balls should have fallen in for hits, and uh, so the, stati- the the back statistics, the the sabermetrics guys were really saying this guy's overperforming. He's he's just not there. He wasn't throwing a lot of strikes. Uh, he, he got lucky, basically, is why he. Uh, and and I guess there's a statistic on how hard a ball is hit, and I, I don't know the the acronym for that. But apparently his balls were getting smashed when he was throwing those things, those little winky dick sliders up there, and they were being caught. So um, I, I don't think that even the Angels, in their desperation, would uh, would reach out to him. But you mentioned a guy like Staley. Now that's a guy that I think has some value. That the Reds aren't going to need him necessarily when they get healthy. And he could really bring back a return now to a team like the Angels, or more specifically the White Sox. They could really use a Dan Staley. He's pitched in the American League, and he's now gotten some value. The Reds, uh, you know, they brought him in. He pitched well, and uh, but uh, you know, I, I go back to Jay Bruce and the White Sox. I think he's a per- perfect match for the White Sox, and they need outfielders, and it's in the Midwest, and I think he'd probably go there. He knows Todd Frazier and, and all that, so. Uh, it, it, I hate to see it happen, but I think Jay Bruce, is he's going to be traded. You think you could pry away a, a little-known outfielder from the Angels named Mike Trout for Straley? <laughs> for Straley? <laughs> 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 you know, you, you, you mentioned that the Angels, um, they're not going to go after Jay Bruce because he's going to cost a lot of money too. But the Angels have a commodity in, in Trout that could basically change their organization. You know, somebody could give them uh, three or four players, uh, really top players for Trout. And where do you think he might end up? We talked about this briefly last week. Oh, the Yankees. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think he's a he's a perfect candidate for the Yankees. The problem is, do the Yankees have enough young players that that could change the landscape with the Angels? And I don't understand how the Yankees always have prospects coming through their organization that other teams constantly want. Have you ever noticed that? They always make these trades with their prospects. You hardly ever hear of these kids that, that when they finally get to the major leagues, but the Yankees hardly ever bring them up to the major league level either. They always trade them away for established major leaguers. Well, that, that's a strategy that a lot of GMs believe in, that it's better to trade on the hope of a good double-A player than the reality of a weak major league player. Like a guy comes up, he's, he's supposed to be the next great thing, and he hits 228. Well, all of a sudden his value is just nosedive. When he was in double-A, when he's supposed to be the next great thing, you know, you can get a lot for him. So there's there, there's some strategy there that the Yankees seem to have taken care of. But the Yankees are have been a 500 team with that payroll for the entire year, I don't see them getting any better, not in that division, with the way Baltimore and Boston are playing. Uh, It's amazing that that team has taken such a different path in the last five years, that they're not signing the free agents, and maybe they learned their lesson. I mean, after they lost Jeter and they've signed a lot of uh, very expensive uh, high-end players, it just has not worked out. 
Well, like I said, we're going to talk about the draft coming up here in our second half hour between the Reds and the Indians. And there were made, there were some big surprises in the draft last week, we can say that. But I, I want to get into one other subject right now, Mark, especially with the Indians, because Draymond Green of the Golden State Warriors evidently started an epidemic with his little right foot kick into the midsection of Stephen Adams of Oklahoma City about three weeks ago. Two Indians players last week, Mark, Jan Gomes and Juan Uribe, had to leave games because they were hit in the mommy-daddy button in, in ball games. And both of them, Jan Gomes was out for three days, Mark, and Juan Uribe yesterday got hit there. And they literally had to bring the cart onto the field after he laid there for about five minutes and take him off to the hospital. Now, it's not a laughing matter, but I had never seen that before in Major League Baseball. Two guys on the same team in the span of less than five days, Mark, are hit in the same spot and have to leave Ball games. I mean, it doesn't happen as often as you think, but boy, when it does, it's almost an epidemic. I, I didn't see the plays, and if there weren't, obviously they're wearing protective cuffs. Um, and I hope. Yeah, you, you hope. I, I can relate to that very, very easily. Uh, just as an aside, I was playing. I played basketball at Wright State, and we were playing UD at the UD Arena, and there was a loose ball at midcourt. And I went for the ball instead of the guy from UD, UD player. And we both kind of leaped for the ball. And he, his foot went right into my crotch. And at the time, I was not wearing a cup playing basketball. Should have been, wasn't. And I literally, I almost passed out from, from the pain. And I went to my knees. And it was on TV. <laughs> and And my... My sympathetic teammates, I remember them saying to me, Mark, just grab your head, grab your head. Yes, you know. the old Bill Cosby routine, <laughs> without the drugs. That's right. <laughs> that, that was, I couldn't, I couldn't walk for you know, four or five minutes of such pain. And then the second time, I remember very vividly playing third base, and I thank God I did have a cup on. And there was a hard ground ball to third, came up on me, and you heard this clunk. And it, it, it even hurt with a cup on. I, I was able to pick up the ball and throw the guy out. But, I mean, I was next to the, the visitor's bench, the, the opponent's bench, and uh, everybody was laughing, and I had to laugh. But you could hear this clunk all over the stadium. <laughs> oh. And I can imagine if you get it wrong, if, if you're hit in the wrong spot, and you can be hit, you know, right above the cup. Uh, your lower abdomen, I guess, would be called, and and it can be very, very painful. But if your cup is off center a little bit, or I've heard of cups even breaking, they get hit so hard. So it is no laughing matter, and I didn't see what happened to the Indians players, but I can certainly sympathize with the pain because it's special pain. Gomes took a foul tip there, and Uribe took a short hop there. And, you know, just just to continue your story very quickly, because I can only tell this quickly. I can remember it, and it, I still grimace. When I was playing high school baseball, our shortstop took one there, fell to the ground, and started screaming 
in pain. And we were all like, okay, we know you got hit there, but what is the problem? He was screaming and just rolling and rolling in the dirt at shortstop. We finally got enough guts to gather around him, pull his pants down, and his cup had split and pinched him. Oh, yeah. I've heard of that. Yeah. I, I've heard oh. of that. That that will get your attention for a while. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, with all of the forward thinking that we've got, the mechanical engineers, the the healthcare providers and everything, though, Mark, you would think that somebody could actually develop and produce a cup that is more comfortable to wear. Well, that's why you see players on TV grabbing their crotch all the time, because it is uncomfortable to have a cup on. And sometimes the cuff gets off center if you, when you're running, and it can really be uncomfortable. I mean, if you think about it, it's a piece of hard plastic that's stuck in a spot that is very sensitive anyway, and sometimes it gets off center, and the guys are always reaching down. You see them at, 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 when they go to the plate. Sometimes they're always adjusting their cup and all that stuff. And I'm sure the women are saying, oh, my God, these guys are so gross. Well, uh, ladies, you don't know what we go through with these things. And you're right, Dave, it's too bad that NASA or somebody doesn't come up with a cup that's uh, a little more forward-thinking in the way they uh, you know, are designed because what guys wear today are very much what they wore back in the 1920s. It is. And, Mark, on the other hand, for the women that are out there saying, why are we talking about this? It's for the same reason that they complain. Girls softball players, I've heard them complain about wearing sports bras. Yeah. But, it's uh, it's uh, the it's, same the same thing. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, one of us can't relate to the other. But uh, it's, I can tell you, the thing that used to get me when I got hit there playing basketball or baseball or even football is what you don't understand is the nausea. That is associated with it. it's, it's not just pain. You get very sick, and you you want to you want to puke right there, and you can't if it's on TV or whatever. Although I've seen guys do that, I, I saw it happen to a Reds player, a pitcher who got hit there. One hopper came back, and he caught it with his cup, and uh, he went right down, and he threw up right there on on camera. So it, it does happen, but that that's. In my experience, the nausea it probably is as bad as the pain. Well, moving along, <laughs> I want to bring up two players that I am very, very impressed with over the last couple of weeks for the Cleveland Indians. One, I have been blowing this guy's horn ever since spring training began, and you can testify to this, Mark. Tyler Naquin has been a find for this ball club. Sure, he's a former number one pick for the team. But I'll tell you what, Mark, the Indians got themselves in a position that we talked about last week with the Marlon Bird suspension. They have had to bring up Tyler Naquin and play him, and he has taken this job by the horns and will not give up the center field job as much as Terry Francona would like to platoon this kid. He just can't. On this First, on these seven games out on the West Coast, Mark, he had a game-winning home run versus Seattle last week and a game-tying RBI single Saturday against the Angels, and he is playing outstanding defense in center field. We've heard managers say all the time, general managers, Mark, I know you've said it, in order to win, you've got to be strong up the middle. 
the Indians were not strong up the middle with these yo-yos that they were playing in center field in Rajay Davis, Lonnie Chisholm, Marlon Byrd, these guys. But now that they've got a legitimate center fielder out there, their defense is shored up, and they are able to win ballgames, I quite frankly think that the reason that they've gone on this streak, they've won eight of their last ten uh, over the, these last ten games, is the fact that they have finally solidified their center field position and they don't have to worry about left and right anymore. Well, that old axiom of being strong up the middle is is more than an axiom because it means that you're strong behind the plate, you're strong at second and short, and you're strong at, at center field. And that's where a lot of the activity in baseball happens. That's That's where it all happens. So it's interesting when you break down the number of balls that are hit to the first baseman, the third baseman, the left fielder, and the right fielder, on a percentage basis, it's very small. And that's why defense sometimes can be overrated there because they just don't have the opportunity. But you look over the years, over a single year, the ground balls to short, the ground balls to second, the fly balls to center. That's where all your defense activity takes place. And if you've got a strong catcher behind the plate who can keep the running game in gear, protect the pitcher from, from wild pitches, uh, it makes all the difference in the world. So it's not surprising that when you have uh, a strong center fielder added to the equation, you're, you're going to be a much better defensive team. And, of course, if they can hit, uh, all, all the better. Well, Naquin's hitting over 325 right now with the Indians and is doing an outstanding job in center field. The other guy I want to bring up is a guy that, you know, I've talked about have, being a head case for the last couple of years, but somehow, some way, the Indians have managed maybe to get through to Trevor Bauer over the last month, because since April and May, in the month of June, Mark, this kid has pitched outstanding baseball, especially the last two games that he has pitched against Seattle and the Angels. Against the Angels on Saturday, well, I'll tell you what, Mark, he was outstanding, giving up, yeah, he, he gave up three runs in the ball game, but they were all unearned runs by the defense, and he was just outstanding as a right-hander. And he's he, he appears, Mark, that he has finally gotten it through his head that he doesn't have to throw hard, as hard as he can, against every hitter. And he can mix up his pitches and change his speeds. And he's more effective that way than he is when he tries to throw it through a brick wall. Well, I told you I wanted uh, Trevor Bauer for Jay Bruce, and you wouldn't make the trade, darn it. So... Uh... <laughs> Uh, I still think that would be a good trade for the Indians, but uh, with their pitching depth. At any rate, yeah, I mean, he's always had electric stuff. I remember the first time I saw him. I, I think he had come over what from the from the A or from the uh, Athletic. I'm sorry, the Angels. Didn't he come up from the Angels? No, he came. He came over from the Diamondbacks. Diamondbacks. Okay, I remember the first time I saw him face the Reds when he was with the Indians. He was throwing really hard, and his great curveball electric slider, but he, he couldn't he couldn't put it where he wanted to put it, and the Reds beat him. In fact, they beat him pretty bad. Uh, but you could tell he had this, the ball came out of his hand real easy. He, he had easy gas, and uh, but uh, in that game he got he got upset with himself. He threw the glove, threw the hat, and you know was sulking on the in the dugout. And you could tell he had some other issues other than his arm. But 
at any case, uh, you know, he, he's a, he's a find, and with the rest of your pitching staff, man, if he can, be, if he's your number three, four, or five starter, you got a pretty good rotation. You know, the thing about it is, is when Perez, uh, when Perez went down for the Indians, when he went down with a broken finger, their backup catcher, they brought Chris Jimenez in. Now, now Jimenez has been with the Indians three times over the last five years, but they brought him in this time. And they teamed him up with Bauer. He seems to be Bauer's personal catcher now. And ever since they brought Jimenez in, Mark, Bauer has seemed to be more focused, more relaxed on the mound. We've seen this happen with other catchers where they become their personal catcher. And that gives the manager an opportunity to give the everyday catcher a day off at least every five days. But... Do you really think it has something to do with a, a pitcher's psyche being that familiar and that comfortable with the catcher? Oh, sure. I mean, you look at John Lester and David Ross. You know, when the, the Cubs signed Lester, they went out and signed David Ross from Boston to, to you know to team him up. And look at the year the Cubs are having, and the year Lester's having, and Ross is having. He's hitting two seventy five. He's playing great defense, and you know, having a great year. Sometimes it's personality. Sometimes it's an older catcher who can finally get it through the thick skull of a young pitcher what to do, how to do it. Sometimes they're friends. They, they, you know, the pitcher trusts the catcher. But when you have a situation where your pitcher, you know, you see him shaking off a catcher uh, half a dozen times or more a game, you've got a problem. They're not reading what a hitter is lead to do, and they're not on the same page. And sometimes a young pitcher will feel obliged to throw what he doesn't want to throw. And if you've pitched before, uh, you you need commitment on your pitch. If you're going to throw a slider, you you want to throw that slider exactly the wrong spot because if you don't, somebody's going to hit it 400 feet. So when you don't have a pitcher and catcher on the same wavelength and, and a pitcher says, oh, darn, okay, I don't want to throw a fastball, but I will, well, it's that that's the wrong attitude. You want to look down and see that your catcher is on the same wavelength with you, and even if he's not, you have faith in him. He's calling for a changeup, and you hadn't even thought of a changeup. You're thinking curveball. Well, you say, oh, yeah, maybe, okay, I got it, yeah, I know, I now I know. Well, you, you, you trust that catcher. So there can be a relationship between a pitcher and catcher that, that transcends what you might think, and that's why catchers are, are so valuable to a team. Is it even that, you know, anymore, a lot of the pitchers are being called from the bench. Is is it still that important? Yeah, it is, because things can change. And many catchers who are looking to the bench, it, it could be as much as, well, we're playing the defense to the right, so we want to see something in the outside corner. What I could never understand, when, when, a, when a team sets up their defense, say for a Jay Bruce, and they're pulling everybody to the right side of the infield. And then the pitcher throws the ball on the outside. <laughs> what What are you thinking? We, we just set up our entire defense for you, and you're letting him go to left field if he wants to. Now, Jay Bruce may not, but it, it's amazing that sometimes they don't pitch based on the alignment of their own defense. It makes no sense. But that that certainly has changed the way pitchers and catchers react to one another. And it, you know, it's it. No matter what you hear about the the the, the pitch calling, 
who's going to select the pitch. It's the pitcher's responsibility to make the final decision. If he doesn't want to throw a fastball in a certain situation, he has the right and the obligation to shake off the catcher. But if you're a pitcher and you have a catcher down there and you're constantly in disagreement, he's calling for a fastball when you want to throw a slider. He wants a change, you want to throw a fastball. And it's constant. It's frustrating. And, and yeah, you can shake him off, but that, that's, that's, that's a real pain. It gets you out of your game. What you want is you look down, you want to throw a fastball, and the catcher says throw a fastball, but he might say throw it on the inner half or throw it on the outer half or, or throw it low so it's not a strike. That's where you want direction from that catcher. It's not just the pitch. It's the location of the pitch. A fastball can be thrown. There's half a dozen ways to throw a fastball, and location's part of that. So that's what you're looking for that catcher to do. Okay, Dave, I want you to throw a fastball, but I want you, you're a catcher. You know what I'm talking about. I want you to throw it on the outside corner because this guy, he can't reach that pitch. So that's, that's the kind of direction you want from a catcher and the kind of confidence you, you want to have in him. Well, the draft happened last week, Mark, and first of all, let's talk about what happened in the Reds part of the draft. It seemed like they really cleaned up on Thursday night. They got a lot of talent for their, their team, Mark. Were you happy with the way that the Reds drafted over the weekend? Yeah, I was. I, I think that they needed position players, their first three players. They got from all indications, and I've read probably 15 or 20 uh, analyses of the draft, and the Reds got really high marks for the players they got. They got some good baseball players. And even the catcher they got, I've forgotten his name now, but uh, he's supposed to be a really, really good, solid player, a guy who can, can be around for a while. Uh, but their, their number one pick, uh, the third baseman out of Tennessee, uh, the best compliment I heard was that one of the GMs said, not only is he the best hitter in, in the draft, best overall hitter, he's going to hit for power, he's going to hit for average, he's a contact hitter, but he said he could be the Reds' next Scott Rowland. That's the kind of player they drafted. And I think that's pretty high praise for, for anybody who's being drafted. But And also, the other thing I heard, that this kid is the closest to being major league ready. He could be up in 2018. He's that good. Well, that catcher you're talking about was Clemson's Chris Oakey. Let's go now to the Major League Baseball Network and find out what they said about how the Reds did on draft weekend. So it is. Nick Senzel, he started his college career as a DH. Became a second baseman and sophomore year, only to become a quick study at third base this year. His arm strong enough to stick at the hot corner, so is his bat. Uh, fresh off a monster year, hitting 352 with eight homers and over 50 RBIs with a whopping 25 stolen bases. This guy can play. Uh, hard to punch out, sprays the ball to all fields. Uh, he led the Cape Cod League in almost every offensive category. Give us the player evaluation, Dan. Yeah, above average field to hit, best college hitter in this year's draft. Uses the entire field. I think he will hit for power. I think the power will come. This guy's a very, very good athlete. I think he's a roll six, all-star type player at the major league level. I think the Cincinnati Reds got their next Scott Rowland in this year's draft. Mm. That's a great comp. 6'1", 205 pounds, Jax Renzik. Did the Reds just draft a quick-to-the-big-leagues player? This is the best hitter in the draft as far as all the college players are concerned. This guy reminds me a little bit of Kyle Seeger, and he's a big doubles guy where he hit 
Kyle Seeger set the record in North Carolina for doubles. This guy led the SEC in doubles. Great work habits. Father was a college basketball player. Tremendous in and out of the gym. This guy's going to be a really good league player. He can run. Athletic. He is extremely athletic. Mark, I've had an opportunity to watch him play during some of the, the regional tournaments that Tennessee was in. He has got a nice swing, and he looks very comfortable at the plate. Yeah, you, know, you talk about easy gas with, with pitchers. Well, he's got easy power. He's got a nice, controlled, level swing. As one of the announcers said, he's not going to strike out a lot. He's going to make contact, and he's going to be a tough out. That's the thing I look at as a hitter, is see a tough out. When Jay Bruce first came up, he was not a tough out. If you if you you could you could get Jay Bruce out by you know a low curveball, he'd strike out every time. This guy is going to be a tough out, and you can really see what the Reds what they're trying to do, and even their their, their second draft pick, um, the young man um, Taylor Trammell. Taylor Trammell, yeah, from Georgia. Uh, he, he is he's more of a five tool type typical player. This guy could really be a great. He's got a high high ceiling. I'm not sure that Senzel has the high ceiling that uh, this other guy had, but uh, the Reds are looking for baseball players. They're looking for guys who can uh, make contact. And, uh, you know, I, I was very happy with the draft. And the other thing I liked is even their fifth player, uh, I think the, the, no, the fourth player they, they drafted was a pitcher, uh, 6'5", throwing 95 miles an hour. He's 18 years old out of Minnesota. And I, I think yeah, Anderson, yeah, right-hander. He, he was a great pick for the Reds, I and mean, he got a lot of high grades as a, as a young man. He's only 18 years old, six five, what two twenty five or something. Uh, so you, you you can see the Reds. This was a great draft for the Reds. <clears throat> I don't know how you rated the Indians draft, but I really can't. And you know, the, all these guys we're talking about, they may not pan out. You, you can't help that. All you can do is make your best guess. Um, make your best judgment. Do your homework, and hope for the best. But I, I have no complaints. If these guys don't make it, uh, it's not the Reds' fault. <laughs> you know, they just the guys didn't pan out. But I, I think the Reds did very, very well this year. Well, a few other names that the Reds drafted over the weekend: Florida lefty Scott Moss. He went in the fourth round of the Reds. In the fifth was Texas A&M right-hander Ryan Hendricks, and New Jersey right-hander Tyler Mondial, who went sixth. Then they got two more on Saturday with college righties Joel Cunell out of Texas Arlington and Mitchell Traber. You know, Traber, I've seen him pitch too, Mark, and the only thing about him is he has got an excellent fastball, but he's got some health problems that uh, makes his pick. He probably, without the health concerns, probably would have been higher than a 17th-round pick. He probably would have gone somewhere between 5th and 5th and the 10th round. But because of those health concerns, he dropped to 17. So if he can overcome those, he might be a steal. Yeah, again, overall, I, I haven't heard anybody give the Reds bad marks for, for this draft. They, they've been uh, very A or A-minus picks in terms of grades. But, you know, in the first day of the draft, it's hard to pick somebody bad. These are all really great young players. And so you can't say, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they picked him because – Everybody picked in the first round is a supposed all-star. And, you know, that that's why they're in the first round. That's why it's so surprising some of these guys, they just don't make it. 
But uh, all in all, I, I think the Reds did very well. Uh, what, what's your take on the Indians? Well, I thought the Indians did extremely well, especially with their first-round pick. That Will Benson, Harold Reynolds calls him the best athlete in the draft period. Now, I don't know that much about whether or not he's the best athlete in the draft, but a lot of people compare him to Freeman with the Cubs, the right fielder. Mm -hmm. uh, tall, tall, lanky player. He can hit the ball. He's he's a five-tool player, but... You know, when you look at it, Mark, he, he's going to be playing behind guys like Clint Frazier and Bradley Zimmer. And, boy, if you can get those two guys or even Benson up to the team with Naquin, it appears the Indians might be in pretty good shape. But let's talk to Tim McMaster and former Reds GM Jim Duquette as they analyze the Indians draft from last weekend. Nobody has done a better job drafting outfielders in the MLB draft than the Cleveland Indians, and they were at it again in 2016. Clint Frazier, Bradley Zimmer, we've seen those guys go to them in the past. They're thriving. How about Will Benson in the first round in 2016, another toolsy guy? And they weren't done with the outfielders, Duke, as we go to round number five. They get Connor Capel, a high schooler out of Texas. Yeah, and this kid can really play. He's a high school kid, as you mentioned. Experience on the showcase uh, level. And you look at him as a left-handed hitter who's uh, the son of another big league pitcher, Mike Capel, also went to the University of Texas. This kid has what it takes to play at the major league level, has all the intangibles and makeup, and he has a terrific swing as well. He's dedicated himself to improving his conditioning. He's improved his game, not only his running, his throwing, but his power. He's a guy that plays the outfield, could play all three outfield positions, likely to be a center fielder. And this is a guy that once he gets into a development system like Cleveland's, I think he can fly through there. So this is a really good pick for the Indians in that fifth round. Well, the Indians, like they said, they are adept at picking outfielders. They haven't really done a lot, Mark, as far as picking uh, pitchers and infielders over the past couple of years. But in the years that the Dolans have owned the team, and I'll give Shapiro credit and Antonetti. You know, they've looked for pitching. They've stockpiled this team with pitching, almost to the detriment of the hitting. Now they appear to be going the opposite direction and try and pick up some hitting. And if these guys can come through, I, I would be very happy. But from all indications, Benson is as close to a sure thing as you can get. Well, all these first-rounders uh, have that same moniker. They're... They are sure things, so they wouldn't be drafted in the first round. But I, I want to chat for a minute about a guy who fell from number one to number six, and that's A.J. <laughs> Puck uh, out of Florida. And, you know, I think if you look at social media these days, it has a huge impact on a player's uh, draft position because th these guys are getting as much airtime on social media as major league players got 20 years ago. Every pitcher is under the microscope from day one. Every hitter is under the microscope. And if you have a bad game, as A.J. Puck did in, in the uh, NCAA tournament, he had two bad games. It cost him millions of dollars because he fell from number one, uh, what was a $9 million slot price for number one, down to number six, which I think is like two and a half to $3 million, which is not chump change. But this is a high school kid, you know, 18 years old. And every time he goes out to pitch, he, his statistics are instantaneously spread all over baseball. 
They know the, the depth of his curveball. They know his velocity. They know the number of pitches he threw. They look at his attitude when he goes back to the dugout. Is he mad? Is he immature? All these things that before you, you never knew. So you, these kids are under pressure starting at 15, 16 years old because, hey, you're, you're going to be on TV. As you said, you've seen how many college games and high school games now are on TV every week. And if they're not on TV, you go to YouTube, and every game, practically, you can find every high school game played somewhere in the United States is on YouTube. So these kids can't hide anymore. But I can't imagine that at that age, having your mom and dad come to a game and say, look, son, you go out there and pitch well, because if you don't, you're going to lose your, your draft status, and, you know, dad's out of work. So go, go get him, Tiger. What was the reason that he slipped so far? Well, they said it's inconsistency, and that he because the Reds, you know, you recall, he was going to be picked by the Reds if the Phillies didn't pick him. Well, not only didn't the, the, the Phillies pick him, the Reds didn't. He fell all the way to sixth, and Oakland picked him, and he may in fact end up being a great a great left hand pitcher. He's six seven, two forty five. He's a big stud, but he did not pitch well, and they said one of the biggest things he didn't recover quickly. He would he would pitch. He was wild, and he'd come back, and, and, and he couldn't pitch two or three days later. So that concerned people, and I, apparently there was an attitude issue. I don't know what it was. I just heard that, that there was something they didn't like about the makeup. And if you have to write a check to an 18-year-old kid or a 22-year-old kid, I think Sincel was 21, actually, uh, he's probably going to get 5 or $6 million at least. You've got to be sure. And uh, apparently the Reds got their man. They, and you know, in in retrospect, <clears throat> they were going after this kid. They they really wanted Nick Senzel, and they were hoping that uh, the Phillies didn't pick him up. Well, they got their man. I think the Indians got their man. You know, there's a lot of scuttlebutt going on out in Seattle right now, Mark. That the Mariners wasted a pick in the 24th round when they picked Ken Griffey Jr.'s son. Now, what made that so upsetting to Mariner fans out in Seattle, Mark, is the fact that Ken Griffey Jr.'s son doesn't play baseball. He's a football player. That's right. He's a pretty good one. I mean, he's playing for a Division One team. and He's playing for SC, I think, isn't he? Uh, yeah. So he's clearly an athlete. And, you know, whether or not he could ever play baseball again, um, maybe it was just <clears throat> a draft homage to Ken Griffey Jr. <clears throat> Pardon me. But um, that is, I'm not sure a 24th pick is, is a wasted pick. You know, I'm not sure many of those kids are going to make it. But uh, you, you never know. I mean, it's, um, it, it is a, a, a dice roll, but you, you certainly have a, a great athlete there. Now, whether he can play baseball, we don't know. You know, realistically, when you look at the draft, Mark, let, uh, because I've got the list of the Reds draft here. I don't have the list of the Indians. But out of the players that they've drafted, realistically, what percentage are ever going to make the major leagues and what percentage are probably just career minor leaguers? They say 5% of those signed will make the big leagues. Of the 5%, only 2% become "Quote unquote everyday players," so you know it's a incredibly low probability that you're going to make it. <laughs> and if you do make it, how long do you stay? 
I mean, the, the Reds have a couple guys up, you know, for a cup of coffee every year, as do the Indians, and you ne- never hear from them again. You hear about them in the minors for years, four or five, six years sometimes. They make it up, they have four, 14 at-bats with the Indians, and they're gone, and you never hear from them again. It's such a dice roll and, and, and a crapshoot when, when you draft these kids, particularly high school kids. You just never know, you know, how are they going to develop. That's why over the last 10 years, there's been a much greater transition into the college ranks for draftees rather than high school because it's just such a long projected time and the development cost for a high school player is so extraordinary. So with Senzel as, as, as an example, Tennessee basically developed that kid. And it's worth it for the Reds to pay more money for him you know, than maybe taking a kid who's 18 years old and you've got to bring him through the minors for five or six years. The, 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 the salaries, the, the, the development costs, all those things add up to an enormous amount of money. So you'd rather pay money at the front end and get a developed professional player. I mean, Sinzel, right now, could probably walk on and make the roster of several major league ball teams, baseball teams. And it's because he's, he's, he's had three years at Tennessee, you know, SEC competition. He, he's proven himself. He's, he's a good citizen. He's a good student, uh, great background, all the things you want. He, he's a thoroughbred, and that's worth the money. Now, the Reds have a player in their minor league system named Amir Garrett, who's a left-hand pitcher, and he's rocketed through. The, they say he's going to make the rotation next year for the Reds. He's a left-hand pitcher, 6'5", great athlete, but he played basketball in college. So he's developed more slowly, and he's, he's probably going to be 25 years old when he comes up for the Reds. But Teams today are looking for the athlete. You mentioned the, 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 the Indi- Benson, the draft choice for the Indians. He's a great athlete. And I think that's maybe what the Reds saw in Griffey. Okay, may- maybe he's not going to be like his father or grandfather, but he's certainly got the physical tools to some maybe uh, have a shot someday. Well, that would, that would ex- be extremely interesting. As we move to the draft, let's move to a couple of players, Mark, that you know, you, you've talked a lot about how Jay Bruce may be available with the Reds. And what makes him so attractive, Mark, to several teams, especially, you know, teams like the White Sox and maybe the Red Sox, even the Yankees, for example, is the fact that he's got a short-term contract at a relatively low rate. He's, I think he's got one more year on the contract for about $12 million a year. Is that correct? It's Yeah, it's this year. It's his last year on the contract. He's got... Thirteen million next year, but there's a buyout I think involved in that. So you're right; he doesn't have a lot of money on the books. And comparatively, this is a guy who is a great citizen. He's he's a great guy, and he's what 28 years old. You think he's been around forever? But this is his eighth or ninth year in the big leagues. He started when he was 19. He's going to have some unbelievable statistics when he hangs them up. So you could draft a legitimate power hitter. Never a tent of steroids, great guy, uh, all the things you want to, you can build around. And this year, he's, I think, third in the league in RBIs, 44 RBIs. He's got 14 home runs, hitting about 275. Uh, he's stealing bases, playing tremendous defense. Uh, and he's finally recovered from that knee, knee injury of two years ago. 
uh, that I think that's the explanation anyway that's being given is that he was performing so poorly because he had knee surgery in the middle of the year, and he came back too early to try and play. So uh, he's a great pickup for somebody, and I I hate to see him go, frankly, because right now the Reds' offense they, they didn't, didn't play well yesterday, but. They, they've been scoring a lot of runs and a lot of home runs, and it's because Jay Bruce is performing like everybody thought he would. And yet, Mark, another outfielder in the same division, in a team that is just ahead of the Reds in Milwaukee, Ryan Braun is getting more sniffs from major league teams than Jay Bruce is, and Ryan Braun is making double what Jay Bruce is through the year 2020. And yet he's getting more sniffs. It just makes no sense. And and he's 31 years old. He's three years older than Bruce. I mean, you could get Bruce for a bargain basement price, but yet a lot of a lot of teams are out there looking at Ryan Braun, and they're also looking at Jonathan Lucroy of Milwaukee. Now, if I was the Indians, I would be interested in getting Lucroy, to be honest with you. And I, I think if I was the Reds, I would even kind of be interested in, in picking him up just simply because he's only about 26, 27 years old, and the Reds need catching. They need catching bad. They cannot go into next season, Mark, with Devin Mesoraco behind the plate. Any, they, they can't do that anymore, can they? Well, they're actually getting pretty good performance by Tucker Barnhart and Rodriguez. They're, they're both playing rather well, uh, both hitting 260, 270, playing good defense. Uh, yeah, Mesoraco was supposed to be their stud, and he's not been their stud. He's been hurt every year he's played. Uh, I don't know why you think it's going to change next year, but it's been a bust. I mean, he, he signed a four-year contract renewal, I think, last year, and he hasn't. He, he's played, what, 20 games in two years. So hopefully he'll be healthy next year, but you're right. I, I don't know if you want to get LaCroix because uh, that's going to be a heavy price tag for him. And catchers don't have a long shelf life. I mean, you have guy, catchers who are pretty good in their early 20s, and then they, they get beat up. And they're, they're just not the same players they are in, in, into their 30s. Very unusual when catchers can maintain that offensive firepower uh, into their 30s. But, you know, Jay Bruce, again, I guess Ryan Braun, uh, you know, I, I think they're both very productive players. Uh, you're right. I don't know why Jay Bruce wouldn't uh, get more interest other than perhaps the Reds are asking too much. Well, if they're asking for anything close to what they were asking the Indians for with Todd Frazier, then I could understand maybe why people are going to Milwaukee and looking at Ryan Braun. But another two players that I've heard are on the trading block, Mark, surprisingly comes from the New York Yankees, Anthony Miller and Chapman. They're on the block. Yeah, I can understand both, actually. Um the, the Yankees have a, an abundance of, you know, back-of-the-bullpen uh, firepower. I don't think Chapman uh, has, I think, what, he has nine saves. And uh, he, last I heard, I think it was last week, and it changes quickly with relievers, his ERA was under one and, uh, you know, pitching very, very well. So I don't know if he's done anything performance-wise that would uh, make that trade uh, something the Yankees want to do. But it could be the Yankees know they're not going to compete, and just like the Reds, when when you know you're not going to compete, compete having a reliever like Chapman is superfluous. You, you never you never get to the point you can use him, 
And, you know, it's the closer, I think, is the most overrated position in baseball uh, because most, I mean, <coughs> hitters get themselves out 70% of the time. So having a guy come in with good stuff, you know, above average stuff, to be sure, in the ninth inning, it's not that hard to find to get three outs. And to pay these guys $13, $14 million uh, for a reliever doesn't make a lot of sense. I think Chapman and his agent are going to really regret not demanding he become a starter because had he become a starter, you're talking about uh, you know $200 million contract for a guy like Chapman. He'll never see that as a reliever. No, no, he, 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 never, he never will. Mark, as we round out this week's show, first of all, the Indians – Obviously, their goal for the rest of the year is to win the Central Division and get to the playoffs. But when you've got a team like Cincinnati that is 20 games out of first place here on June 13th, heading into tonight's activity, what is their goal for the rest of the year? What does Brian Price set as an achievable benchmark for this team to get to? Well, very, very simply, I think they want to set their rotation for next year. I think that's priority number one. Get the five-man rotation that you're comfortable with going into next year. Uh, identify who those guys are. Let them know who they are. Let them train as if they know that they're going to be in the, in the rotation. And then you've had a pretty good success in, in, a, in a down year. But then you can also, once you have your five-man rotation set, and maybe you have three or four backups in case of injury like they had this year, then you can start putting your bullpen in place. Get the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning taken care of. And the Reds have enough arms now, and they're going to have enough people coming in from the minors next year. I think they're they're going to be better than people expect on, on a pitching side next year. And from an offensive perspective, uh, the Reds have to get rid of uh, uh, Brandon Phillips. They have to bring in somebody else uh, in in uh, at second base. I'm not sure Suarez is the answer at third. He's, he's a defensive liability at this point. Very inconsistent hitting. He's hitting down in the low 230s again. Strikes out way too much. I'm not sure the Reds can afford to have him anchoring third base. It wouldn't surprise me if they put Adam Duvall at third base next year because it's going to be easy. That, 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 that's his natural position. That's where he played with the Giants. He's a pretty good third baseman. And then have somebody else, again, that elusive left field position, you know, find somebody in, in free agency or whomever, wherever to, to fill that spot. But uh, it, it, Peraza could probably play second base for the Reds next year. He could play left field. He could play third base. A lot of options for the Reds. And I, I think the Reds may be closer than people think to being a contender next year. Nothing record-wise as far as what they want to do, maybe try to try to get out of out of uh, last place and beat out Milwaukee, no, no, no. goals of that nature? No, not at all. I, I don't think anybody thinks that this year would be considered a success finishing fifth as opposed to sixth, um, or fourth or fifth, I mean. Uh, it doesn't really matter uh, at this point. And this, this season is lost record-wise. They're going to finish 30 games under 500, um, and, and that's, that's being helpful. Um, but I, I think they can come – out of this season with some positives, if they can go into 2017 saying, here are our five starters. And I think they got the, the arms to do that. Well, let's let's see what happens through the latter part of this season, Mark. The Reds this week, 
They started out with a three-game set, a four-game set, actually, with Atlanta tonight. They'll play them again Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday afternoon, and then they go to Houston, and that will be Friday, Saturday afternoon, and Sunday afternoon. The Indians, on the other hand, they're at Kansas City tonight, a game that got underway just a little bit ago. They play them in Kansas City on Tuesday and Wednesday. They're off Thursday, their first day off in two and a half weeks, and then they come home to face the Chicago White Sox this weekend, Friday, Saturday night, and Sunday afternoon. We'll talk all about it next week on another show. We'll talk to you then, Mark. Have a good one, Dave. Thanks a lot. That's Mark Donahue on tonight's show. Our thanks to him. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell for producing tonight's show. But most of all, our thanks go out to you for listening here this evening. Don't forget, coming up next week again, next Monday night, will be another Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. For Mark Donahue, I'm Dave Mitchell. Have a good night, everybody. The Wiz Kids had won it. Bobby Thompson had done it. And Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born. Marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking day.